Well, go ahead and make your way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to continue in our study of that book and really even of this passage that we began last time. You remember maybe uh, if you were here, we, were, we started uh, what we thought was going to be covered in one sitting. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 13, but we only covered 6 and 7, so... Lord willing, we'll finish that that sermon I had titled The Problem of Pride tonight. We'll just do part two of The Problem of Pride. So tonight we're going to look at that bigger chunk, 8 through 13. But just to remind you, and especially if you haven't been with us, maybe you missed last time, just by way of review... Well, let me put it on you. What were the three points? What were the three problems of pride that we covered last time, verses 6 and 7? Anybody tell me? Bonus points if you can tell me without your notes. What's that? Too late. late. Just give it to me. Hit hit me. Uh, Yes. (laughs) The Cliff Notes version. Thank you, Hayden. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, we, last time, if you remember verses 6 and 7, we, we noted that um, pride has a problem with correction. In other words, we drew that from the first part of verse 6. You remember we saw how Paul was, was, was really saying that he had applied you know, all the truth that he's been teaching in the first three chapters, especially in chapter 3, to himself and Apollos first, figuratively, he's transferred those lessons to his own example first before applying it to them because, why? The implication was Paul knew that the Corinthians were proud and had he come out guns blazing and called them nothings and them nobodies, um, they would have perhaps resisted what he was trying to teach them. And so we concluded from that that pride has a problem with correction because of how Paul approaches confronting them about their problems. And then we noted, secondly, that pride is a problem with Scripture. Notice the second half of verse 6. Remember, the lesson that he was trying to teach them, he comes right out and says it this way, that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, right? so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. In other words, we, we learned last time that, that to exceed what is written, to go beyond what has been written, was really Paul's way of saying to not come under the Word of God. It was Paul's way of saying, look, I want you to learn, Corinthians, not to exceed Scripture, not to bypass, not to think you're above the Word of God. Because every time, guys, you take it to the bank, if you disregard what God says in His revealed Word, it will always lead to pride. It will always lead to exalting human opinions, which is what they were doing, right? Over the Word of God. And so pride... Clearly, we saw from that second half of verse 6 as a problem with Scripture. And then lastly, in verse 7, with those three rhetorical questions, 
we saw that pride has a problem with grace. Yes? Yes. Don't have a seizure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Was it doing that during the song too? Right. Thanks. Um, yeah. So we saw last time in these three questions in verse seven that pride has a problem with grace. Remember, Paul asks there, "Who regards you as superior?" Or literally, "Who's making distinctions um, among you?" Who's saying, I'm better than you, you're over here, we're over here. In other words, pride forgets that grace sort of equals the playing field. The level is ground, or the ground is level rather at the cross. Remember, pride forgets that. And we saw that in these questions. What do you have that you didn't receive from the Lord is the implication. What, in other words, what good in you, anything of spiritual value and fruit can you attribute to yourself apart from the grace of God? And the answer, of course, is nothing. But pride forgets that, right? And he clinches the argument with that last question that if you didn't, or if you did receive it, if all that you have is by God's grace, then, then why do you boast as if you'd not received it, right? All boasting is done away with when grace is remembered, but pride forgets grace. So pride is a problem with grace. So that's what we looked at last time. Well, tonight we're we're simply going to add one more problem to that list with these this last this this paragraph, this next paragraph, verses eight through thirteen. We're going to see that. Fourthly, that pride not only has a problem with correction, with scripture, and with grace, but pride also has a problem with reality. Pride has a problem with reality, verses 8 through 13. Or as one commentator, Tom Treader, puts it simply in, on this section of Scripture, conceit blinds people to reality. We talked about that last time too, right? Isn't that true? I mean, don't you find that to be true in yourself and in others as well? So often, listen, pride blinds us, doesn't it, to our true condition. It, it, it masks sort of that reality, a, a true assessment of ourselves and our situation. Pride warps our ability to rightly evaluate not only ourselves, but also our circumstances because pride tempts us to Think about it, overlook and downplay or justify our own weaknesses and sins while shifting the blame to other things and other people. In fact, pride will often cause us to even reinterpret God's providence in order to make ourselves look better than we actually are. Have you ever, you ever encountered that with somebody? Right? Um, I caught a fish and it was this big. And then the next time they tell the story, it was this big. (laughs) It's a trivial example and illustration, obviously. But the point is pride has this delusion. It is, there's this blinding effect of pride 
that we have to look out for and be careful of. Pride denies reality about ourselves and about God and about others. You see, if, if, if the other three problems we looked at last week are summarized by, one, a lack, a lack of teachability, like pride lacks teachability, a lack of submission, and a lack of gratitude, then tonight, maybe we could even say it this way, the issue is um, a lack of sobriety. Pride is like a strong drug or drink. In fact, Thomas Watson once put it this way, pride is a spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain and intoxicates it. In the same way, C.H. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, once preached on the foolishness of pride, calling it a groundless thing, a brainless thing, and the maddest thing that can exist. And that is so true. If you sit and think about it biblically for a moment, for created fallen creatures to be proud is one of the craziest ideas, isn't it? You have to be insane. You have to be spiritually mad. Pride is a problem with reality. Beloved, you are never more insane and out of your spiritual mind when you're proud. And just to illustrate this, um, I mentioned C.J. Mahaney's book on humility last time. Uh, He tells of a hilarious story about how pride drove him at one point to pretend that he knew um, what what he was looking at when he opened the hood of his car in front of his daughter to figure out what this, what was making this weird noise. (laughs) Maybe some of you have done that before. Um, Listen to what he says. He writes of that incident. The only thing I actually know how to do is check whether the container for window washer fluid needs refilling. Maybe some of you don't even know how to do that. But he said, so I I checked that with great authority. It was more than half full. Then I shut the hood also with great authority and proud fool that I am, got back into the car and turned to the ignition once more as if my having merely stared at the engine was sufficient to repair it. Yet as I turned to the key again, the same violent shriek issued forth. Only at this point did I finally go back to the house to do what I should have done earlier, that is call the repair shop to notify them of my car's condition. But he goes on then to conclude this of this personal testimony. Now you might assume that in a normal human being with such ineptness couldn't possibly coexist with any significant measure of pride. Someone as unskilled as I am would naturally be humble, right? However, without a doubt, I can assure you that both incompetence, he says, and pride are are very evident in my life. The sad fact is that none of us are immune to the logic-defying, blinding effects of pride. Have you ever wondered... You know how people can be so bad at stuff, but be so proud at the same time. Here's the problem, because pride is a problem with reality. Pride denies reality. And in this text, in this paragraph, we're going to see just how blinding pride can be. So follow along with me as I read Paul's words here up front. I'll give you uh, a bit of an, an outline 
to follow after we read. But notice 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 13. Paul is writing to the Corinthians here who, who are obviously not seeing themselves or their situation clearly. He says this, you, you are already filled. You, you, you have already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Well, in this passage, Paul exposes the pride of the Corinthians by sarcastically pointing out where they were failing to assess themselves and their situation realistically. They were denying reality on a number of fronts. And our outline is simple tonight. I want you to note in this passage, first, their wrong assessment of reality, verses 8 through 10. And then, second, the right assessment of reality, verses 11 through 13. It's the wrong assessment of reality and the right assessment of reality. Delusion, self-deception first in verses 8 through 10, and then the stark truth in verses 11 through 13 about the Christian life. Um, You know what I was actually thinking of uh, as I was coming up with this outline, just even the contrast of, hey, here's here's what here's um, what the Corinthians were thinking was reality, which actually wasn't, and then here's what Paul puts next to it, uh, what what the Christian life and ministry really looks like. I was thinking of uh, the movie The Matrix. You guys seen that? Anybody know when that came out? What's that? 1999. You nailed it. Wow. How old was I when it came out? That's the big question. I was 13. I was 13 when that movie came out. I remember watching it, and um, I, don't think, I don't think I watched it at 13, though. But you guys remember the scene, and you know, I mean, for those of you who know the movie, maybe if, if you don't and you hadn't seen it, this illustration will kind of fall flat. But the red pill, the blue pill, you know that scene where Morpheus is offering to Neo, look, do you want to wake up and face the reality of what the world has really become? Or do you want to stay in the matrix, plugged in, and just have this facade of a life? I just thought of that as I was you know, coming up with this outline and even hearing Paul say, look, for the Corinthians, do you want to stay blinded to reality um, in your pride or wake up and be truly humble? But Notice first the 
the blue pill. <laughs> Notice first their wrong assessment of reality, verses 8 through 10. He begins, like verse 8, you are already filled, you've already become rich, you've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. Now here, here we see that pride will cause us to make wrong assessments about ourselves. In case you didn't pick up on it in the reading of the text, this section is actually dripping with sanctified sarcasm. You know, Paul's not actually speaking of reality when he says, look, you're filled, you're rich, and you've become kings. He's he's actually stating those things sarcastically. How do we know that? Because how do we know that Paul doesn't actually believe that the Corinthians were filled rich and kings already because notice at the end of verse 8, he says, and indeed I wish that you had become kings or literally would that you had become kings, which tells us that they weren't actually kings in reality. They just were thinking of themselves that way. And so Paul is, is poking at that. In fact, if you recall earlier in chapter 1, verses uh Verse 26, in reality, Paul had described them as not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble, remember? That was the reality. And yet, here they were thinking of themselves as, I am, I am so great. See, Paul is poking at the fact that the Corinthians believed in many ways, at least they were acting like it, that they had, they had already arrived, that they had already become mature, that they had already achieved a level of spirituality beyond even what the apostles had. You see, this is what pride does, right? Pride always believes that you're farther along than you really are. And notice the repetition here of the word already. I mean, twice Paul uses it along with the phrase without us, referring to the apostles. You see, in their pride, the Corinthians had deceived themselves into thinking that they had already reached the top, that they had already surpassed the the apostles. In their pride, they'd convinced themselves somehow that they had left the apostles behind in the Christian life, that they that they had grown they'd grown complacent and they'd become self-assured, self-satisfied and really smug about their spiritual condition. And Paul, with his sanctified sarcasm here, is trying to help them wake up from this delusion. You know, one commentator captures the effect of Paul's statements here when he says, these Corinthians are lucky. Already... They enjoy favors that the apostles dare only hope for. You see, somehow they were already thinking of themselves as having become morally and spiritually perfect with no more need for growth or advancement in the Christian life. Pride blinds us of the reality of our need, doesn't it? Pride seems to forget that we still have weaknesses and sins. Pride convinces us that we don't need any help 
that somehow we are sufficient already in and of ourselves. In fact, notice Paul's language, his choice of words in these three verbs. You're already filled, you've already become rich, and you've become kings. The first term, to, to eat one's fill, describes the state of being satisfied, perhaps even glutted, full. It, it refers to that feeling that you have right after you've eaten Thanksgiving dinner. It's like, man, can't, man, no more can go down the tube. This is how spiritually the Corinthians felt about themselves. Per, perhaps we could say that they were full of themselves. It's that idea. And the second word here, to be rich, describes in monetary terms, a state of, of not lacking in anything. In fact, uh, the same word is used in Revelation 3, verse 17, where Jesus has some similar things to say to the church in Laodicea. Remember, he says, he, 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 he indicts them by saying, because you say this, I am rich and I've become wealthy, and listen, and have need of nothing, He says, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And the same was true of the Corinthians. They thought they had it all. They thought they needed nothing. They considered themselves rich and having need of nothing. They had been blinded by their pride to the reality of their true needs. And the last verb here, to become king or to reign, describes a position of rule and authority. It's, um, you know, it's a term that's used often to refer to a conquering king who comes to establish you know, his reign after victory over his enemies. In fact, it's, it's, used, um, it's used that way in Luke 19, 27, if you're taking notes, to refer to Lord who slays his enemies because they refuse his reign over them. It was, it's, it's actually used um, positively of Christ's coming reign as king over all creation. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, after he's put all his enemies under his feet, this is what Jesus will do. And and. You know, those of you who were with us in our study of Revelation, Revelation 11, verse 17, it's used there as the seventh trumpet judgment is blown, signaling the beginning of the end of God's enemies. And it's said that Jesus reigns is the same word. In other words, so you pull that into this context, the Corinthians then thought of themselves as having already conquered all their enemies. And, and already having been in a position of final victory. This is what they thought of themselves. And they were blind to the reality of their true spiritual condition. You see, well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. The Corinthians declared, I am full. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Corinthians declared confidently, We are rich and lack nothing. While Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 earlier, Let a man regard us as servants and stewards. The Corinthians were claiming to be kings already. You see, Paul had written, you remember, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. This was his attitude. Not that I have already attained it, 
or have already become perfect. And yet the Corinthians had become convinced they had already arrived at maturity. Do you see how silly and irrational pride can be? Ever done this before? Ever thought of yourself more highly than you ought to have? That's pride. Pride is so intoxicating. And it is so intoxicating that it can lead you to deny the reality of your own ongoing need. Pride will make you think that you are sufficient, that you need no help from the Lord. When in fact you aren't sufficient. Pride will make you think you're full when in fact you're empty. It'll make you think you're rich when in fact you're poor. It'll make you think you're a conqueror when in fact you're still a slave to your sins. Beloved, to live under the influence of pride will impair your ability to see yourself rightly. So the question tonight is, how do you view yourself? Are you deluded are you in, or are you in touch with spiritual reality? Do you, do you often underestimate your own weaknesses and sins and overestimate your ability? Are you overconfident like the Corinthians were? See, if we want to cultivate humility, true humility, then we, we need to heed the words of Romans 12, 3, right? Where Paul warns us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. We must resist the intoxicating effects of pride and think soberly about our spiritual condition. You know, the Corinthians failed at this and The result was that they had an inflated view of themselves that wasn't in accord with reality, but it didn't stay there, right? Pride doesn't just remain with our own inflated view of ourselves. It it also then spreads from there to affect our view of others, right? Not only does pride cause us to make wrong assessments of ourselves, it will also cause us to make wrong assessments of others. Notice What Paul goes on to say, continuing the sarcasm, he says at the end of verse 8, Look, indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. In other words, this is Paul sarcastically saying, Man, I wish I had what you have. Man, that must be nice. See, it should have been clear to the Corinthians how absurd and inconsistent it was Think about it. The very men in whom they were boasting, right? I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas. That those very men in whom they were boasting were themselves not being treated by God the same way they were claiming. In fact, notice how Paul attempts to make this point obvious in verse 9. For he says, he says, he Look, I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Notice first how Paul clearly attributes his experience and the experience of the rest of the apostles to God's doing. And it's very different than what the Corinthians were claiming, right? He says, it is, it is God who exhibits us or puts us on display or parades us last of all as men condemned to death. Um, by the way, the language here is, 
is borrowed from the gladiatorial games that the Corinthians would have been familiar with. You know, three words sort of hint at this for us here. First, notice the phrase, men condemned to death. It's just one word in the Greek, and it refers to those who are sentenced to execution, typically by being fed to lions or wild beasts in the Colosseum. The second word, notice here the phrase, actually, those victims were also considered last of all, because here's the picture. Whenever a conquering king or general would go off to war and come home victorious, what he, he, would, he would lead a triumphant procession or really victory parade back into the city, which would usually end last of all with prisoners of war who would be then marched right into the arena and be killed in this way. And third, even the word spectacle here is a reference to this kind of gruesome entertainment. It translates the Greek word where we get our term theater from. It was the ancient show to watch. That's what they did back then. And so Paul says, look, this is is actually our experience. This is what we're like. you're, You're claiming to be kings. And yet this is what we as apostles experience. In fact, this isn't the only time Paul will use this imagery to describe the Christian life. You know, he'll go on in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14 to say, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. It's that same picture of a conquering king's victory parade and us as his captives. But what Paul saw as a good thing and the work of God through his suffering and ministry, the Corinthians, you see, in their pride, seemed to miss reality. They not only misjudged themselves, but they also misjudged the apostles. In fact, they had become so blinded to by their pride that they saw Paul's suffering as a weakness when in reality it was a sign of God's victory. And so in an attempt to awaken them to reality, notice verse 10, Paul continues his sarcasm. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. That was their perspective. We are weak, but you are strong. You you are distinguished, but we are without honor. You see, in the Corinthians' pride, they had reversed reality. And then Paul here simply states then what the Corinthians would be forced to conclude if if they were to maintain their prideful position and remain in their self-deception about their spiritual condition. You see, Pride will always misjudge reality. It'll always look at things backwards and upside down. And the Corinthians not only overestimated their own spiritual condition, they missed the true spiritual condition of the apostles. They were measuring Paul and according to the standards of worldly wisdom and human strength. And in so doing, they concluded that which was opposite of God's perspective. They missed 
they missed spiritual, the spiritual reality. By the way, if you remember, Paul, Paul had already made it clear in this letter that what the world perceived as wise was in reality foolishness to God. You remember this, right? Back in chapter 1, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Chapter 3, verse 18, especially he even warns them outright, look, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he's wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Well, here, Paul uses the same language to show the Corinthians that their pride had actually caused them to side with the world rather than with God and His true servants. And that's what pride does, right? Pride had successfully blinded them to spiritual realities, the way things really were, and so they were they were like natural men, verse, chapter 2, verse 14. They were, they were acting like men of flesh with no spiritual perception, with no spiritual eyes to discern and appraise true spiritual tr- strength, wisdom, and honor. How tragic is that? You guys, do you find yourself in that position sometimes, evaluating things as the world evaluates? and then becoming puffed up because of it. You need to be careful of that. Pride will always blind you to what is truly there. How is your grip on spiritual reality? Do you clearly, do you see clearly and soberly? Or has pride obscured your vision, both of yourself and of others? Like the Bible's going to say, If that's the case, take the log out of your own eye. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't take the blue pill and remain self-deceived. Pray that God would show you areas in your life where pride has blinded you. So that's, that's verses 10 through 13, how pride makes a wrong assessment of reality. But notice, and this will be quicker, then having confronted their wrong assessment in verses 11 through 13, Paul now turns a corner. He puts aside the sarcasm and speaks very candidly about uh, the, how things really are in the Christian life and ministry. This is the right assessment of reality. This is how things truly are. And there's really no sugarcoating it. You know, again, it reminds me of that scene in The Matrix when Neo finally chooses the red pill and he wakes up to the real world and he's unplugged and it's bleak. But notice how Paul describes his experience in verses 11 through 13. The Corinthians are confronted with how things truly are. He says, to this this present hour, listen, we're both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless 
and we toil working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We've become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. It's not, it's, it, it's not the glamorous picture the Corinthians had imagined, right? In contrast to, the, to what the Corinthians thought, the, in contrast to the Corinthians who thought that they'd already arrived, notice these verses are bookended by the uh, phrases that emphasize the fact that th- this is Paul's present reality. This is his current experience. Notice verse 11, to this present hour. And at the very end of verse 13, even until now. This is, this is real time. And notice how the picture is so different than what they claimed. Instead of being full or satisfied, Paul says, we're both hungry and thirsty. Paul knew what it was like to go without the basic necessities of life, right? Just read Philippians chapter 4. He knew what it was like to, to get along with humble means. He learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul knew what it was like to have very little of what he needed it. Instead of notice, instead of being rich, Paul says here, we are poorly clothed. Some translations say naked, but the idea is just inadequately dressed, perhaps without proper outer garments. You know, we see this exemplified, even illustrated at the end of Paul's life. He writes, remember, to Timothy in prison, 2 Timothy 4, verse 13. He asks Timothy, Look, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus. Paul was often without what he needed most, even to stay warm. Instead of being kings, Paul says we're roughly treated or literally beaten as Jesus was in Matthew 26. He says, he says that, that, that they're homeless or literally without a permanent residence, right? Uh, they were... Constantly on the move, Paul, as an itinerant missionary, had no place to call his home, nowhere to lay his head, just like his Savior. And Paul says, notice, we toil, working with our own hands. You know, that that kind of, it sounds positive to us, but really this was referring to the degrading activity of menial manual labor because the elite in society of that day never stooped to physical labor. Um, that was reserved for slaves, right? Uh, DIY and Chip and Joanna Gaines, that was not cool at the time. <laughs> All that was work only cut out for slaves. And so this is a commentary on his low status in society and this this was the reality of true christian ministry and it wasn't glamorous by the world's standards but notice also how humility responds to this lowly life of suffering the end of verse 12 into verse 13 when we're reviled paul says we bless 
When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Or in other words, we, we speak encouragement. We respond with exhortation instead of reviling in return. Right? In every instance, instead of retaliating, Paul, like Jesus, while being reviled, didn't revile in return. While suffering, uttered no threats. Instead of repaying evil for evil and insult for insult, Paul learned to give a blessing instead. And no doubt this would have been perceived as weakness in the eyes of his enemies and critics. Right? To the world, isn't that what Christians look like sometimes? To the world, to the proud, and to those who evaluate things with human wisdom, Christians are thought to be pushovers and useless and weak. In fact, notice then finally how Paul summarizes what he and the other apostles were in the eyes of the world, perhaps reserving the strongest language for last. He says, we have become as scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. You know, the word for scum and dregs, it's the same root. It just refers to the filthy residue that clings unwanted to a surface. And it can be anything. (laughs) It's kind of gross to think about, but it's the kind of filth and muck that has to be, it's, it's clinging so hard to a surface that it has to be scraped and scrubbed off, right? I think often of the, I think first of that gunk and grime that accumulates behind the toilet. And that's what Paul says, look, that's what we have become in the eyes of the world. That's what God's servants are seen as. This is how God's servants are treated in this life. This is reality. And and you know what? Humility embraces that. Humility embraces that. Paul knew this to be true ministry. And later he'll go on to write, and this is indeed true spiritual strength. You remember he'll go on to say, 2 Corinthians 4, Verses 7 through 12, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. See, this, this was Paul's perspective. This is spiritual reality. And so he can say also in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with stresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, humility 
embraces suffering and ill treatment from the world because humility sees with the eyes of faith. Humility agrees with God's assessment of things. Humility agrees with God's reality. Humility evaluates life and ministry from God's perspective and not from the world's perspective. Paul knew this, and he wanted the Corinthians to learn this. So let me ask you tonight, do you believe this? Which eyes do you see with? Are you deluded? Has pride blinded you to spiritual realities? How do you evaluate things? Where are you proud? Where are you tempted to evaluate life according to the world's standards? To downplay your own sins and weaknesses? To justify? To blame shift? To exalt yourself over others? To miss what God says in His Word? Where has pride blinded you to reality as God sees it? You know, I pray, I pray that we, we can, that we would all see clearly and strive for humility. May we not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. May we not evaluate others and our circumstances in pride, but think so as to have sound judgment. So, guys, use this passage, right? First Corinthians 4, 6 through 13, to evaluate then your own heart, to see if you have a pride problem anywhere, right? Ask yourself, do I have a problem with correction anywhere in my life? Am I teachable? Do I have a problem with God's Word? Is there any place where I'm going beyond the Scriptures? Or am I submitting to what God says in His Word? Do I have a problem with grace? In other words, am I thankful for all that God has done in my life? And do I have a problem with reality? Um, do I have a problem with reality? In other words, am I, am I thinking soberly or have I been blinded um, to how things really are? So hopefully that's a, a helpful way to outline that section. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, text, how it equips us to identify uh, what you hate because, Lord, we, we are reminded that you, you are opposed to the proud, yet you give grace to the humble. So it is such a matter of urgency to us that we would identify areas in our life where we are like the Corinthians. Lord, we pray that you might purge us of such pride, that you would give us clear biblical sight and that may we always evaluate and see things as you see them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.